All the way back in 1994, Denise and I were living in Atlanta, Georgia, and it was March, it was near our anniversary, and we decided to go for a weekend trip to Helen, Georgia. Helen, Georgia is about two hours north, a little bit east, and uh, we're on our way there, and Helen, Georgia is gorgeous. It is a tourist town. It has the charm of Bavaria and the heart of the Blue Ridge Mountains. It's got all of the colored decor of Germany with the foods and the chocolates. It's just an incredibly good place to go, a lot of fun. And we're on our way to this anniversary weekend, and we're traveling through the North Georgia Mountains. And I will never forget the landscape that we went through. There had been tornadoes that had passed through there. It wasn't very long before that. And pine trees by the thousands were broken off at the base or completely with the roots up laying on the ground as if a cosmic scythe just mowed them down. And I was so astounded at this that I did some research on pine trees and I discovered that pine trees, the roots tend to grow laterally, outwardly, but they don't tend to grow deep. And so it makes them very susceptible to storms, makes them very susceptible to winds and ice, and they fall over fairly easily. I want to bring that analogy into this series that we are now in the second week of. And I want to take you to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be in chapter 1. But if you haven't opened up your Bibles yet, go ahead and open them up. We're going to pray in a minute. But I want to take you to to Colossians chapter 2. And I want you to read with me verse 6. Because verse 6 really tells us what the purpose of the book of Colossians is. And Paul writes this. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. You know, there's a really interesting verse in Luke chapter 8, and Jesus is using an agricultural parable and he speaks about seeds that are scattered on lots of different types of ground. And in chapter 8 of Luke, verse 13, Jesus said this, And the ones, or the seeds, on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, fall away. Well, this book was written to help us be rooted so that we would not fall away. And in the time of Colossians, the church in Colossae, false teachers were coming in and they were being tested and they were beginning to fall away. So Paul wrote this book to strengthen their faith with the power of the gospel, which is always centrally about Jesus Christ. All right, why don't we go ahead and pray. Let's ask the Lord to go before us and really open up for us the power of his word. Would you pray with me? Let's all pray wherever you are right now. Uh, I would recommend, uh, as awkward as this might be, maybe bow your heads to give the respect to God, but also so that you can really focus 
on him as we pray. And you pray with me. You speak these words with me. You add in your own words as we invite the Spirit of God to open up our minds. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize and we affirm that your Son, Jesus Christ, is glorious. He is the Lord of creation. He is the Lord of the church, and he is the Lord of our salvation. And we're going to look at all three of those in a moment. So, Father, we ask that your spirit that we're going to be singing about a little bit later in this service, that that spirit of God would open our eyes so that we could see Jesus and root us deeply in him and ground us securely on that foundation because there will be and there are times of testing that are coming. And we pray that we will stand the test and we will thrive in the power of the gospel. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to ask again that you get your Bibles open. And I just can only tell you that if you don't have your Bible open, especially in this message and the one that we were in last week, you're just not going to be able to know what I'm talking about. Because I'm going to show you a lot of these specific words and how important they are. And I'm actually going to try to work through nine verses. And each of these nine verses have words that you could preach entire series of sermons on. So we're going to do our very best, but let me invite you, get your Bibles open to Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 15 through 23. And I'm just going to walk our way through it. And I'm going to discuss our way through it as if I'm in the front room with you, in your living room. I wish that you could ask me questions in real time. We could try to help each other, but I'm going to discuss the way through, and I just want to encourage you to really listen and really learn even more than what you know now about the person of Christ. Verse 15, I hope you have your Bibles open. Paul is talking about Jesus Christ. That's the pronoun he, and here we go. He is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now that was verse 15, and there's already a lot in here that we could talk about. Let's just talk about it a little bit, because if you get a knock on your door one day from a group called the Jehovah's Witnesses, and you tell them that you are a Christian, they're likely going to open up and point you to Colossians 1.15 to prove what they believe. And what they believe is that Jesus Christ was created. That he was a creature that God the Father made. It's actually nothing new. This actually was started, this heresy, by a guy named Arius all the way back in the 4th century. It was called Arianism. And he believed that Jesus was a created being. So Paul, right out of the gate in verse 15, says Jesus is the image. That word means icon. If you've got a $1 bill, you've got an image on that bill of George Washington. If you've got a $5 bill, you've got Abraham Lincoln. If you've got a $100 bill, you should probably be sharing that with me. But that's got an image of Andrew Jackson, if I remember right. I don't see those too often. I think it's Andrew Jackson. That's an icon. It's what Hebrews said. Actually, I want you to go to Hebrews with me if you would. We'll come right back. But Hebrews chapter 1 says this about Jesus, 
that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That was a word that they used in ancient Greek when they would take their signet ring. They had a seal or an image in the ring and they would put it into hot wax to put their seal on a letter. So Jesus is the exact imprint or the exact representation of God. He is the imprint of his nature. So in other words, if you want to know what God the Father is like, well, then you really need to study Jesus because Jesus is God. There is nothing in God that is not in Jesus, and there is nothing in Jesus that is not in God. But if you go back to Colossians chapter 1, and you get back to verse 15, then Paul says that he is the firstborn of all creation. And again, that's where they have believed that Jesus was the firstborn, like the oldest son in a family. And that is actually one way that that word can be used. It can be used for the oldest child. But that's not always the way that it's used, and it's not the way that it's used here. And all you've got to do is look at the context as you talk to a Jehovah's Witness and show them. You see, Israel was called the firstborn of God's people. They're not the first people created. It means that they were the premium, the primary, the priority of God. That people group called Israel were the highest in rank in God's heart. You get all the way back to Psalm 89 and you get to verse 27. If you want to look that up, it talks about David. And this is kind of one of those really cool dual prophecies. It's got two layers to it. The Bible's talking there in Psalm 89, verse 27, about David, that he was the firstborn of the kings of the earth. But David wasn't the first king of Israel on the earth. Saul was the first king. So the word can't mean first in order. It means that there was no king greater than David of all the kings of the earth. He was in rank the highest. Jesus is not a created creature that God made. He is the highest being in rank. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven, verse 16, and on earth, and look what it says, visible and invisible. So the Bible claims here that Jesus created everything. Now, right now, we're having a little bit of a collision, probably a lot of a collision, between what we're taught in our schools with evolution and a big bang and what the Bible says, and that is that God created all things through Jesus Christ. This is the claim. Look at what it says again in verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Everything in heaven and everything on earth. And then he, he gives a little bit of a tagline, the visible and the invisible. And let me give you just a little bit of the wonder of our creation. If you travel from one side of the earth and somehow cut a line right straight through the core of the earth to the other side, that's the diameter, you're going to find that our earth diameter is about 7,900 miles. That's a lot of miles. If, however, you go to the sun, our sun, 
you're going to find the diameter of the sun to be 865,000 miles. Look at the difference between the earth and the sun. If you were to travel around the earth, you're going to have to go about 24,000 miles. If you want to travel all the way around the sun, you're going to have to go 1.7 million miles. That's how big the sun is. In fact, you could take 1.3 million planets of earth and fit it inside the sun. This is amazing. And our sun is just an average star in the Milky Way galaxy. It's an average of 250 billion stars in the, in the Milky Way galaxy. If you want to get to a bigger star, just look at Betelgeuse, which is 700 times bigger than our sun. But our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, is just one of 200 billion galaxies in our universe, which is ever-expanding. And Jesus created it all. This is an amazing truth. In fact, Job chapter 9, verse 9, if you go to the Good News translation, says that God hung the stars in the sky. The CEV version of the Bible says that God put the stars in the sky. You know, my wife, Denise, she is uh, what we call a Christmas tree whisperer. I mean, it's a little odd. All of our family uh, jokes about this every Christmas because my wife, when she decorates the tree, it has to be absolutely perfect. And every ornament that our children have ever made, every ornament that they bought in their school stores, even one ornament that I made when I worked in a psychiatric center, that all has to go on there. And it all has to go on in a balanced way, and it needs to go right where she wants it, or she's not satisfied. Well, that's God with the stars. He put every single one of them exactly where he wanted them. They are hung in the sky and they bring glory to him. That's the visible. And those distances are astronomical, right? Between uh, the earth's size and the sun and Betelgeuse and the galaxy and the universe gives new meaning to the word astronomical. But then you go to the invisible, and science tells us that we're all made up and everything in the material universe is made up of atoms. And if you go down even deeper inside of an atom, you get these nucleuses or nuclei. And in these nucleuses are protons and neutrons. And protons are what they call positively charged. And in electrical language, that means they should be repelling. That's what magnetic science tells us. These protons ought to be flying away from each other, but they're not. And I'm going to tell you that scientists don't really know why. They've called it the nuclear force. They've got other names for it. But they call it the nuclear force. They've, they've said that all of these neutrons and protons are made up of quarks. And even down deeper than quarks are all of these gluons. How's that for an unsophisticated theory of what holds it together? Gluons. But all of these, the, this, this nuclear force that, that somehow binds these protons together and they cannot explain it. We can explain it. Look what it says just a little bit further down. 
He is before all things, and in Jesus Christ, all things hold together. You want to know what binds those together? It's the power of Jesus Christ. He keeps the stars, and he keeps the planets in orbit. He keeps everything right where they need to be. This is the power of Jesus Christ. He is the Lord over creation. Now, we're going to see that he is the Lord over creation. He is the Lord over the church, and he is the Lord over our salvation. But I want to tell you a little bit more because I think this is really important. Can you all look at your Bibles and look at verse 16 because it begins there. Do you see that three-letter word, all? And you're going to see it repeated over and over. For by him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And it's going to go on even more. And that word all is fantastic. It leaves nothing out. It means everything, and I can explain it and illustrate it in a couple ways. Let's say, you go, let's say you go to Disney, and you've got your family with several children with you, and you go to Disney in the summer when there are hundreds of thousands of people there, and I can guarantee you, especially moms, they're going to be constantly checking, do they have all of their kids with them? See, moms don't leave that up to dads usually, because dads kind of think a little bit different. Which one of those kids was on his nerves that day? Yeah, we've got most of our kids with us. We'll find the other one in Lost and Found. Do you have all your kids? That's what a mom's going to do. Do you have every single one of them? But I could give you another illustration of the power of the word all, and it's actually taken from an episode of the sitcom Parks and Recreation and it features Ron Swanson, one of the main actors. Ron Swanson's in a diner. He's sitting at the bar of the diner, and they bring him what he ordered, a steak dinner. He looks at the steak dinner, and he speaks to the waiter and says, take this back, and I want you to bring me all the eggs and bacon you have. And the waiter, with a puzzled look, begins to turn around, and, and Ron Swanson says, wait, wait. I'm worried that what you just heard me say was bring me a lot of eggs and bacon. What I actually said was bring me all the eggs and bacon that you have. Do you understand? So Christian, I want to I ask you, do you understand that when Colossians says that he created all things, that all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and all things hold together because of him. There is no room for anything but everything. This is the supremacy. This is the lordship. This is the power of our Savior, of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then Paul is going to change this a little bit, and he's going to start talking about how Jesus is the head of, of the church. He's the Lord of the church. And look at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. That word means the source. He is the source. He is the firstborn from the dead. Well, there's that word again. I can tell you this, that back in the Old Testament, there was a little boy that died and Elijah raised him back to life. 
And there was a young man, a young boy that died, and Elisha raised him back to life. And I can tell you that in Luke chapter 7, a young man died, the son, the only son of a widow, and Jesus raised him back to life. And the best friend of Jesus, Lazarus, or at least a very good friend, he died and Jesus raised him back to life. So this doesn't mean that Jesus is the first person to die and then to come back to life. Again, it means that of all the people that have died and been resurrected, no one achieves the rank of Jesus Christ. He is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now that word preeminent, I think, gives us a good reason to kind of slow it down a little bit. And you could be a teenager, you could be young, you could be a child, and you could be older, you could be a parent. You can begin to grapple with this. And I want to ask you a question. Is Jesus Christ preeminent in your life? Does he have the greatest rank? Is he your greatest priority? Is he supreme in your life? Now, I will tell you two ways that you can answer that question. One would be with your checkbook, and the other one would be with your calendar. So how you choose to spend your day, is Jesus of the highest rank? Is he preeminent? Do you think about him? Do you think what he wants you to do before you book an appointment, before you make an an action, before you commit to a behavior? Do you pause to get your bearings in Christ? Do you take time before your day even begins to say, God, this is your day, Ephesians 2.10. You've already created the things you want me to do. My job is to faithfully, obediently walk in them. Do you take that time to pause and reflect? Will I be obedient? Or those times where you know and you sense and you feel God convicting you and you stop and you sit under that conviction And you pray for God's grace that you would repent, that you would turn from the direction that you were going and go in the direction that God wants you to go so that he could give you life, that he can bless you. And your pocketbook or your wallet or your checkbook, is there a premium? Is Christ preeminent with how you spend your money? Do you bring to Christ the things that you want to buy before you buy them and say, is this pleasing to you? Everything I've got is yours. You own it all. You're sovereign. You own the cattle on a thousand hills. I might think that I'm earning a paycheck. I might be thankful for a government stimulus, stimulus package, but that's really your money. You're letting me steward it, so let me honor you by making you preeminent in my life. See, that's what the lordship of Christ demands. And you're going to see that in just a few minutes. He goes on, not only that he might be preeminent, look at verse 19. For in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, we've got to slow it down just for a few minutes. I've got to tell you a little bit more about this heresy that's coming into the church. 
Now, some of you right now are saying, all right, this is a good time to go to the kitchen to get a snack. Probably telling your wife, you know, call you when he gets back into the better part of the preaching. I'm telling you, you've got to sit right there. You've got to learn this because it's going to help make the book of Colossians make sense. You see, there was just the beginnings of this philosophy that there was a supreme God that had all of these emanations, all of these pulses of creations, and he kept creating all of these eons. And there was like a chain, and every eon was a link in that chain, and the further along that chain you went from the supreme God, the Father God, the less divine they were, the less powerful they were, and the more corrupt they were. You go down that chain far enough, and the Gnostics, this is the heresy that's coming into the church, believed that you would find the Old Testament God, his name was Jehovah or Yahweh. And the Old Testament God was so ignorant, he was so far away from the Supreme God, he did not even know the Supreme God existed. And he tried to create life, and he created earth, but he botched it. And so everything on earth was corrupt. There were earthquakes and tsunamis and people died. But he unwittingly put into every human being a spark or an essence of the supreme God. He didn't mean to. This is a, an evil God. This is a corrupt God. He puts this spark in every single human being and the supreme God said, well, listen, I've got to send one of my eons to the earth to be able to help people become who they were meant to be. So he sends the Christ. The Christ was one of his created beings, and he comes to earth. He didn't come to redeem sinners. He came to reveal knowledge to the ignorant, that you are, you have the spark of the supreme being in you, and his job was to teach and to give knowledge and blow on that spark so that it would ignite into a flame so that you could rise beyond your boundaries and become a god yourself. In order for that to happen, you had to say no to all of your desires. You had to try to kill all of your temptations and your sinful wants. And you had to observe all of these, these festivals and all of these uh, important days. And there were things you could eat and things that you could not drink. All of these went into this heresy. And it's beginning to come into the church. They're being tested. And Paul hears about it and writes the book of Colossians, to root them and build them up in the faith so that they can stand through the test. So when Paul wrote what we just read, I'm going to read it again. For in him, verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That was exactly contrary to what they were teaching in this heresy. You want to hear what they were teaching? Jesus was born just a human being. And he was a human being for 30 years until John the Baptist baptized him. And when that dove, the Spirit of God, came down upon him, the Christ entered him and made him divine. 
And for three years he ministered and he gave his knowledge, they taught. And then at the end of those three years, he was crucified. But God cannot be crucified, they argued. So on the cross, the divine, the Christ, left his body. And he died just a man. By the way, this teaching is still around. It's still in the word faith movement. You're going to hear it in some of Kenneth Copeland's teachings. You need to be careful. You need to be alert to that. So Paul's saying, wait a minute, you don't understand. All the fullness of God was in Jesus. You see, the Gnostics told you that God can't touch matter because matter, physical property, was corrupt. And Paul says, no, you don't understand. God and Jesus were together. Jesus was fully God and fully man. You see, Jesus is the Lord of the church. And he goes on, he was pleased to dwell, God was, in the person of Christ, and through Jesus to reconcile all in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now you're going to hear this again in a minute, that word reconcile, there's a couple Greek words for it. One of them is when a mother or a a wife and a husband are separated, they are estranged, and they decided to make it up. They try to work together, they patch it up, and they get back together. They are right with each other again. They are friends again. That's reconcile, but that's not this word. This is a very much stronger word for reconciled. This means they are back together in every single way. You see that newly reconciled wife and husband, they're going to fight again. And they're going to have arguments. They're going to struggle the rest of their marriage. We all do. But when we are reconciled with God, something happens on a complete, total, permanent basis. We are made right with God forever. We are his friends again. And he calls us his friend. And he did it through the cross. He made peace, verse 20, by the blood of his cross. You see, here's the the center of the gospel, is that we were sinners, and we are sinners. And every single human being, if you're watching this and you're listening to this, you're as much of a sinner as I am a sinner. And we're born cosmic treasons with the capacity and the nature to sin. We want our way more than God's way. And we do things that we should not do that God tells us not to do. And we don't do things that we should do that God tells us to do. And we fall short of the mark. We fall short of his expectations. That's sin. But sin is not just your behavior, it's the internal heart that says, I don't even want what God wants. I would rather have what Tim Ackley wants more than God. That's what a sinner is. It's cosmic rebellion. It is defiance of the first order. And a sinner deserves the wrath of God. The Bible says sin brings death. But then Leviticus 12, I think it is, tells us that there is life in the blood. And the point is that if we are to live, even though we deserve death, then something innocent has to die in our place. 
That's the only way we can be made right with God. And the only human being that's ever been declared innocent, the only holy, spotless lamb that has ever been sacrificed is Jesus Christ. He's never sinned. He is holy. And when he went to that cross and he went there voluntarily, when he was nailed on that cross and he gave his life for us and he yelled out the third from his seventh final word, it is finished, when he yelled that out, he was declaring, I have done everything I need in my death to make right those who have sinned. And that is every human being. And you see, if you put your faith, if you believe in Jesus Christ, that he died in your place, that he died as your substitute, you will have life, the Bible says. You will cross over from death to life. You've got eternal life, and that begins now. But believing means that you believe the right truth. And not only do you believe the right truth, you're, you're completely persuaded by it. And you're persuaded by it to the point where you will yield and entrust your life to Jesus Christ. And the moment you do that, you are reconciled to the Father. You are made right with him, and it is by the blood of the cross. Now, I want you to see now Paul moves to the final point. He's told us that Jesus Christ is the Lord of creation. Jesus Christ is the Lord of the church. And now Jesus Christ is the Lord of salvation. I want to tell you something as quickly as I can. I had a family actually about 18 years ago that came to me. And it was a mother and a father and they were divorced. But they still had a partnership over their children. They had a daughter and they had a younger son. And so they would work together to try to raise them. They actually were fairly good friends. And they came to me because their daughter, 14 years old began to develop an eating disorder and all she did was worry about her looks and so i asked the mom well what have you done as her mom what are some of the things you've said what are some of the things you've tried to do and she says well here's what i've tried to do i've tried to help her get a better identity better self-esteem i'm trying to help her get a better self-image i've given her all kinds of magazines of photoshopped women and i've explained to her that because of what computers can do none of those women look like that and that she's beautiful as well and i began to talk to her and i began to help her understand that what she was trying to do as a parent was actually throwing gasoline on the fire of the problem you see the problem in a faulty identity is that you're looking at yourself more than you're looking at anybody else you're narcissistic you're self-centered if you want a better identity if you want a better self-esteem a better self-image then it's really about averting your eyes away from you and putting them on someone else and the one that you want to put them on is jesus christ now, right now, in our culture, everything is the craze about your identity. And I'm going to tell you that that's a leftover effect of Gnosticism, because this is exactly what Gnosticism aimed to do. 
You have the spark of the supreme God in you. You can ignite that. That can be ignited and you can transcend your boundaries and you can become God. So you've got to pay more attention to yourself. You've got to love yourself more. You've got to work harder. This is all the heresy that's coming into Colossians, into this church. And Paul begins to address it. Look at verse 20, 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, this is amazing. Here's what we were, Christian. We were alienated from God. We did not have the rights of being in the, in the family of God. We were outside early of that family earlier in Colossians. We belonged to the kingdom of darkness. We were alienated and we were hostile in mind. And you might be saying, and maybe you're an atheist watching this, maybe an agnostic, and you're saying right now, I've never been hostile in mind toward God. I'm okay with everybody doing what they want. Well, I'm going to tell you what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12. If you're not for me, you are against me. There is no such thing in God's economy for indifference. If you are not for God and for Jesus Christ, then you are hostile against them. You don't want anything to do with them. That's hostility. And we were doing evil deeds when we were alienated and hostile. You know, it's not just the things that we were doing that makes sin so bad to God. It's who we were doing them against. You know, I've often used this illustration, and I think I'll use it again just for, for simplicity's sake. If you got in an argument with your neighbor, and your neighbor made you so mad that you punched him, please don't do that, but if you did that, then your neighbor probably is going to call the police and the police are going to come and he's going to adjudicate. He's going to decide and you're probably going to get in trouble. And if you get angry at that police officer and you haul off and, and punch the police officer, now you're going to be in jail. Now the repercussions are even greater than they were with your neighbor. And then if you appear before the judge who is really truly going to adjudicate your case, and he tells you that you're guilty and you rush to the front to the raised dais where the judge is sitting and you punch the judge, now you're in a real world of trouble. You see, it's who you sin against. And the Bible says every single sin, every evil deed that we ever commit is first and foremost against God. Against God. We're in trouble. We need somebody that can reconcile us to God. And look what Paul says in verse 22. Jesus Christ is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You want a good identity? Then it is looking at Jesus Christ. And you know what Jesus Christ says about you? It says it right in that verse that we just read. Because of your faith in him, because of his death for you, he is presenting you to his father and you are holy. That word means hagios. It's the same word for saints that I told you about last week. You're holy, you're pure. 
You've been, you've been taken out of darkness and you've been put into the kingdom of the beloved Son. You are right with God. You are pure. Your sins have been shoved away from you, sent away from you. They cannot come back to you. And not only are you holy, because you're holy, you're blameless. God doesn't blame you. Listen, if you sin, which you will, and I will as well, which is why his mercy is new every morning, don't, don't sit there and commiserate that God is blaming me, blaming me, blaming me, and he's holding it against me. He's not. The Bible says there that you are blameless. Your sins were already put on Christ. The ones that you did commit, you are committing, and will commit. They're all on Christ. You are without blame. And you are above reproach. That's your identity. God looks at you and he sees only righteousness. He doesn't see you any differently than he does his son, Jesus Christ. He doesn't love you according to John, the book of John, any different, chapter 17, any different than he does Jesus. The same love he has for Jesus, he has for you. You are beyond reproach. In other words, any charges that the devil, Revelation 12, 10, the accuser of the brethren, bring against you can't stick. You are Teflon. They will not hold to your account. All because of Jesus Christ. That's your identity. You're holy. You're blameless. You're above reproach before him, the way that he sees you, Coram Deo, before the face of God. The way that God sees you, Christian brother and sister, is only love. It's only friendship. But then he writes this, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. And that word if is frightening. But it could be used in a couple different ways. It could be used by a mom or a dad to their child. If you eat all of your vegetables, you can have ice cream. There's a condition. Or it can be used to prove something. Like this, if you beat me, in a game of one-on-one, -on -one, then I will admit you're a better basketball player than me. You see, the word if can prove something, or it can be a condition. And Paul's using it in the latter to prove that you are in the faith. If you do not continue in the faith, if this false teaching sways you from Christ, if it convinces you that Jesus Christ is not enough, it could get you part of the way there, but not all the way there, and you abandon Jesus, then you're proving that you never were belonging to him in the beginning. That's exactly what 1 John 2, 19 says, that those who went out from them when the Antichrist came proved that they were never part of them. But if you stay rooted and built up, steadfast, stable, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister, then you are holy, you are blameless, you are above reproach, and you are before him with his love. In friendship. Christian brother, are you seeing the amazing, Christian sister, the amazing truth of Jesus Christ in these nine verses? Jesus Christ is the Lord of creation, and he is the Lord of the church, 
and he is the Lord of salvation. He is worthy to be worshiped. Can I encourage you to meditate on the person of Jesus Christ this week? To look at what or who you're basing your identity on, your self-esteem, your self-image? Is it based on what Christ has done for you to make you holy, blameless, and beyond reproach? To reconcile you and make you a friend with God, even though you once were alienated, even though you once were hostile to God and full of evil deeds, just like me. Jesus died for you. He has paid for your sins. He has made you righteous, just like him. And how amazing is that, that he is the source and the head of this church. And he is the one that is teaching other people the gospel of reconciliation. And we get to be part of that. Why? Because he is so magnificent. He created the sun and Betelgeuse and the galaxies and the universe and all the way down to the quarks and the gluons and the protons and neutrons, the visible and invisible. And he holds it all together. That's how powerful and amazing our Jesus Christ is. He is our Lord. Can you amen that? I hope you have a week of fantastic worship and find your way to worshiping the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And all of the fullness of God was in him. Amen? God bless Cornerstone.